0: Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Miller's Law, a veteran-founded and run law firm. Miller's Law is giving back to the community that gives so much by making an incredible special offer to our listeners. For the next 30 days, Miller's Law is offering veterans and first responders a family will and power of attorney for only $299, typically a whale in POA can cost over two thousand bucks. That's a seventeen hundred dollar savings. This offer is a meaningful way to say thank you for your service for all veterans and first responders. To take advantage of this amazing gift, don't wait. Go to millerslaw.com, M I L L A R S law.com, or email them at info at millerslaw.com if you prefer to phone you can call toll free one 855 5547 that's one 855 don't delay do it today At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible, with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are streaming live on Facebook, LinkedIn, and other platforms. Today I'm so pleased to have John Brassard. He's a Member of Parliament for Barry Innisfil and until this morning was the Shadow Minister of Veterans Affairs and um, is a Conservative MP. John, thanks for being here.
1: Uh, My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Just to start off, what are we doing for Remembrance Day this year? Is there going to be a ceremony on Parliament Hill?
1: Uh, well, it doesn't necessarily take place on Parliament Hill. Uh, if there is any ceremony at all, it'll be at the National War Monument. I, I know I'm going to be local. Um, this past Sunday. I had two uh, services of remembrance. One in Cookstown, which is a little hamlet in the uh, town of Innisfil. Uh, they do one every year. Uh, at their newly renovated cenotaph, which was great, nice and level. I'm always worried about veterans when they're they're walking on uneven surfaces, so that was great. And then Sandy Cove, which is a uh, seniors' retirement community uh, with a large veteran presence. They had a uh, annual. Uh, Remembrance Day service uh, this past Sunday as well. So for me, I'm going to be in Barrie at the Legion. Uh, It'll be a smaller ceremony than we've typically seen in the past. Usually the downtown in Barrie here is filled with uh, thousands of people, but uh, the uh, Legion has chosen to keep it small and then there's another ceremony that typically goes on in Innisfil uh, both at the Town Hall and at the Lafroy bell ewart Legion Branch 547. I try to balance them off each year. Uh, One year I'll do Innisfil, the next I'll I'll do Barry this year. It's my Barry year. So so we're uh, we're keeping it local. All things are local this Remembrance Day.
0: So what restrictions are the Legion um, uh, in, in your area? What are the restrictions that they're going to implement to keep it small?
1: Well, it's, as I said, it's going to be a smaller gathering. Uh, obviously, physical distancing. I think they're doing the service indoors this year uh the the uh, the actual uh, cenotaph for the main cenotaph for the city of barry is downtown in memorial square um i think my uh doug shipley and i who's the mp for barry Springwater, oro medante we're going to go down to the main cenotaph we're going to lay a wreath on remembrance day and then we're both going to attend uh, i think doug's attending the barry ceremony we're going to do uh you know, the typical service of remembrance, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be indoors this year with, uh, you know, a laying of the wreath outdoors as well at the very legion. So typically, uh, Typically, as I said, the main ceremony for Remembrance Day has taken place in downtown Barrie, but uh, that won't be happening this year. So, you know, the the obviously uh, protocols uh, that are called for by public health are in place, masking indoors, et cetera. Uh, the capacity limits, at least here in Ontario, have been lifted. So I expect that there's going to be a bigger crowd than there was last year, and I'm thankful for that, uh, quite frankly.
0: Legion isn't doing much here in, in our town, so uh, they didn't last year and they won't this year. So it's just locals that are taking it upon themselves to gather at the cenotaph and put on their own ceremony, which is great. So that's We're
1: fortunate. We're fortunate because our legions, both uh, Bell, Ewart, and Lefroy, and the Barry Legion 147, are really, really engaged uh, on Remembrance Day. I know that they've raised their flags uh, to full staff. Uh, they have had it raised for a while now, and uh, so I, I really have a great relationship with both legions. They do tremendous work uh, here locally as well
0: it's a little disturbing that that was even had to be an ask to get the flags to go up before Remembrance Day, that there actually had to be a push and a calling for that. Was that frustrating for you?
1: Uh, It was frustrating for many Canadians, uh, including indigenous Canadians who I was hearing uh, from. uh, Look, the, uh, uh, you know, the road to reconciliation is, is a long one. There is a lot more work to do. And if anything, uh, the events of the past year and the uncovering of the uh, the graves as an example really raised that level of awareness uh, for Canadians on what went on uh, with re- the reg- residential school system and so um, and that was a good thing mark frankly um, and leading up to Um, The National Day of Reconciliation on September 30th was a perfect opportunity for the government to raise the flags again. They didn't do that. And there were a lot of Canadians, many veterans, advocates, families, uh, including Indigenous families, as I said, and veterans who said it was time to raise the flag. And there was a call. uh, I know our leader, Aaron O'Toole, did. I did as well. Uh, a call for the government to raise the flags and so I was glad to see that they they were raised on Sunday. Um, you know, there's a there's a time-honored tradition and a ritual in this country that pays respect to our veterans on Remembrance Day and that is that the flag goes down at, uh, at sunset and it's, uh, or sunrise and it's risen again at sunset and um, you know, I, I really was hoping and I'm glad to hear that that time-honored tradition and ritual will continue this Remembrance Day, and that we're going to pay respect to those who served and those who continue to serve. Uh, there's still a lot of work, as I said, to do on the path to reconciliation. A lot more Canadians are aware of uh, of that uh, as a result of uh, what's gone on this year. Uh, but just as important, I think, is the fact that we have to pay tribute. Uh, homage and commemorate Remembrance Day in the tradition and the ritual that it's been done in the past. And many Canadians I know felt the same way. I, I put out a statement, um, and I know Aaron O'Toole, our leader, put out a statement, and there was uh, quite a large reaction right across the country that it was time to raise the flag so that we can lower them on Remembrance Day.
0: No, absolutely. The flag means something to everybody, but it means something else to those that have bled for it and have uh, died for it. You know, or it's no, not, or no yeah. people that have died for it.
1: It's not just a piece of fabric. Uh, That's it. it is. It is a measurement of our collective state of mind. And I read that recently, and I think that encompasses and encapsulate what the flag is uh, to many Canadians. Uh, you know, obviously, you know when it's when it's risen, when it's raised the way it is. Um, you know, it means something, and when it's lowered, it means more. And so, uh, if it stays lowered all the time, it doesn't have that same meaning, Mark. And no, and uh, Canadians Canadians certainly felt that way. And uh, so, I, I'm glad I'm glad to see that it is raised and that it will be lowered on Remembrance Day as it should be.
0: So am I. Now, uh, until this morning, you were the Shadow Minister of Veterans Affairs, yep. and then now there's a Shadow Cabinet shuffle, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. What role or you you used to be a, a firefighter so That's correct uh, did that help you or how did that affect your role uh, with that portfolio?
1: Well, I think it had a big impact um, you know when I started meeting with veterans uh, when I was first named as the shadow minister for Veterans Affairs, which first happened in two thousand and sixteen under rana ambrose i traveled across the country and i met with many veterans their families stakeholders and advocates and i would tell them that i never wore um the the flag of our country on a military uniform but i did wear the flag of our country on my municipal uniform as a firefighter uh and firefighting being a quasi military organization i I never served uh, you know, on a national level, but I did serve at a community level. Uh, and I have history of military service in our family. My my, my grandfather uh, was uh, in the Second World War as a merchant mariner. Uh, my wife's uncle was killed in his last Lancaster mission uh, over Poland. Uh, his name is in the Book of, of Remembrance, uh, uh, my, my mother-in-law's brother, and, um, You know, and the connection that we have here with Base Borden um, is really a strong and profound one, and the United Nations Peacekeepers are a very active group here in central Ontario. So that connection with the base... Um, really has allowed me, uh, and not just a, in my time as a member of parliament, but also in my time as a city councillor, because the base is so important to central Ontario, not just as Canada's largest training base, uh, but the economic impact that that has on this area. And so in my time as a city councillor, I spent a lot of time at the base uh, working with uh you know, not just the base commanders, but also the honorary colonel. Um, so that uh, that really uh, created that connection. Not just my service as a firefighter, but also uh, that connection to base board, and uh, and really has allowed me uh, that deep and profound respect that I have for not just uh, those who served our country, but those who continue to serve, and, and importantly, their families, because families are often uh, forgotten about. Uh, and just as a member of our armed forces serves, so too does their family. And you know, Mark, it was funny, because when I was first appointed in this role, as I said, in 2016, I travel across the country, and I'd speak to families and service members, veterans, uh, advocates, and I, I would always say to them, as Canada's largest training base, this is how I'd start my meetings. How many of you have been to Base Borden? You know, and of course 99% of the hands would go up, uh, because Base Borden has been here since uh, the, the Battle of Vimy Ridge. It was actually built uh, in in advance of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, to train for that battle. And I would ask, how many of you have been to the Queens Hotel in downtown Barrie? And 99% of the hands would go up. So it was a real good icebreaker. Uh, The Queens is a local watering hole, and many who are served and stationed at baseboard and go to the Queens uh, Friday and Saturday nights. So uh, it was a great way to break the ice.
0: What's Veterans Affairs doing well right now? Where have they improved over the last five years?
1: I think the uh, the level of programs and the amount of programs that are available to veterans. Uh just the, the the number of programs and uh, you know there's any one of those that I can name but uh, I, I, you know it's well over 30 different programs that are available to veterans so the expansion of those programs and the availability of those programs I think uh, have really served veterans well whether it's emergency funding transitional support uh, you know I'm not one of these critics uh, when I was serving as the critic as of this morning uh, who would criticize veterans affairs for everything or critique them uh, if there were good programs there um then uh, you know i would compliment them on those programs so we've seen an expansion of those types of programs that have served veterans well there are challenges with them though mark and that is the knowledge that those programs in- exist oftentimes <laughs> yeah. you know oftentimes uh the program you, know, you many, don't know
0: many... about doesn't help john
1: right exactly so so you know that's really what uh what we tried to do in talking with veterans and advocates group advocate groups across the country is to make them aware of those programs. And I remember sitting in Calgary one time, um, you know, talking about the different programs that were, were that existed within veterans affairs. And this was shortly after the 2015 election, when we transitioned from a conservative to a liberal government and, you know, a hand went up in the back I didn't even know those programs existed. That was one of the veterans. Uh, telling me that so you know and they're changing every
0: three minutes and uh, they're either changing their name or they're changing the context or and and nobody knows what's what
1: yeah and that's and that's a real challenge and that's one of the things that we've tried to uh, really accomplish over the last several years um, is to make sure that veterans and their families are aware of the programs and there are many uh, uh, you know there are many advocates out there who are doing Great work, whether it's the Veterans Transition Network or the Canadian Legion with their service officers. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, I'll contact uh, a legion service officer or my office will in various parts of the country. They'll meet up with the veterans and they'll get them the benefits that they deserve. Uh, you know, it's a process, but at least uh, there are people that are helping our veterans across the country access those expanded services that are available to them, Mark. So, um, you know, that's one thing and that's one of the approaches that I took as Shadow Minister for Veterans Affairs. Uh, you know, it, it was it was really a non non-partisan thing. At the end of the day, you know, NDP, liberal, conservative, we have to make sure uh, that uh, those services are available to our veterans, that they're aware of them, and, and more importantly, that we work together to make sure that veterans are getting uh, what they're entitled to uh, as a result of their service to this country.
0: What's the biggest shortcoming of VAC right now?
1: I think the uh, backlog. Um, that's a, a big issue. It's an issue that isn't resolving itself. Um, you know, I think the backlog stands somewhere north of, uh, well, north of 40,000 uh, claims at this point. Um, we've got, uh, you know, veteran, uh, uh you know people that work for veterans affairs that are quite frankly overwhelmed uh, by the backlog and there are veterans that are not receiving the benefits and their families that are not receiving the benefits in a timely manner and that is a uh, a serious issue and a serious deficiency that's going on right now we've we did a study at the veterans affairs Commit- committee uh, in advance of the recent election i was really glad that it was tabled um that called on some possible solutions to resolve the backlog issue um and uh, uh, you know it'll be interesting and i haven't seen any of the implementation of some of the recommendations to this point uh, but there was a wide range of recommendations that i think mark would make things easier for uh the backlog to uh to uh, be uh diminished uh, what it is right now and it continues to to as i said to continues to grow grow well, the, well, the, well, the problem the the the, uh, the problem is is that you can't you know what the government seems to feel uh, is the solution is to continue to throw money at the problem uh, and putting more butts in the seats in terms of um, you know Veterans Affairs employees to resolve the backlog. I think there is a simple solution to this, uh, and certainly when we uh, when we dealt with it at Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, you know, the simplest solution was one of the recommendations.
0: What would you think uh, if you had to guess the number one challenge that, from the veterans' perspective, with with VAC? Because I know what it is.
1: Uh, I I would say. Uh, you know, finding somebody to speak to. Number one. Uh, secondly, the amount of information that's required uh, sometimes is cumbersome and burdensome for a veteran who is suffering for issues like PTSD, occupational stress injuries, for example. Uh, they keep getting asked to provide more and more information. There's another challenge that exists, right? There's multiple challenges, Mark, not just one. Uh, during COVID, it's become increasingly difficult for veterans to access physicians or psychologists um, when that information is required. And so to me, um, just not being able to provide the right information, the, the delays that that causes in the backlog uh, is probably one of the biggest issues that I hear about now uh, from veterans and, uh, and their advocates as well. Well, I'd share, be interested in hearing. Yeah, I'd be interested I'll, I'll share with you, you
0: John. Uh, yeah. If you talk to any veterans group, um, I mean, being where I am in the veterans community, what I hear again and again is that. Veterans Affairs works as an insurance company instead of a service Mm. provider. They work as the barrier to service as opposed to uh, being the provider of service. And this is something we see again and again, and it's true. And there is a feeling out there, whether there's any truth to it or not, that VAC can actually at times be predatory. And I've seen it. Mm. Uh, just mm. in a conversation yesterday, yeah, my knees uh, were, and it's usually knees, uh, especially if you're a combat arm, You know, yeah, you know, there's a lot of bad knees out there. Um, but the claims will be denied, 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 then approved. Mm. But right. you got to go through the first couple of denials, and eventually it's approved. And that's acting like an insurance company, not a service provider. And um, and that
1: well, and I've heard that's I've, not okay. I've heard that. Yeah. No, I've heard that, Mark. And, uh, you know, the three D's, right? Uh, Deny, defer, and then die. Uh, That's That's what we hear. We hear a lot of. um, And I've heard it at committee several times as well. And so it speaks to the issue of what I said, right? Where, you know, the the paperwork becomes so cumbersome uh, and you're not necessarily speaking to one person. You may get bounced around to different people. Similar to an insurance company, and it's often an analogy that I've heard from veterans that I feel like I'm dealing with my car insurance, rather than a service provider uh, that VAC uh, should be. And so, uh, you know, again, uh, there are solutions to that. Um, You know, those solutions were recommended as part of our committee work. And in fact, in our platform, our policy platform in the election, uh, we spoke uh, in the platform itself about injuries that are attributed to service or presumed to be attributed to to service, and how easy it should be for that claim to be processed in a timely manner when veterans and their families need it most. I know I've had lots of conversations with Gary Wolburn, who was the former DMD ombudsman, and we talk a lot about attribution of service. In fact, a lot of Gary's ideas is what we implemented in our policy platform in the last election. Mm-hmm.
0: The sense of being predatory comes from the fact that one of the symptoms of PTSD um, is a sense of overwhelm with paperwork. Mm. And there's perfectly healthy healthy people that are academics that look at the Mm. paperwork and look at the system, and they're overwhelmed. And they're perfectly healthy, and they're academics. But for average Joe who doesn't have six years of university and isn't used to it, and is suffering from the injury of PTSD, it's completely an unclimbable hill. So they don't even put in the claim in the first place because it's simply too overwhelming. Uh, Are there been any any solutions? Um, put forward to that? Because right now the only solution are service officers who are volunteers. So we're right. coming up with our own solutions. Is there been any yeah. solutions proposed at FAC?
1: Yeah. And your assessment of that is, is, is right, Mark, as far as the, the, and i spoke about this earlier about how cumbersome the process is, especially when you're dealing with issues of PTSD or occupational stress injuries, uh, even transitioning out of the military, which for many people is not a good experience. It's, a, it's an experience that uh, affects anxiety. Um, you know, everything that, that you've been dealing with in the military has been looked after. And now you're starting to think, okay, and transition you now, now I got to start looking after these things on my own, whether it's finding a doctor or, you know, finding housing, figuring out a place to settle. So there is a strong level of anxiety when, uh, those, those, those claims are being processed or in, in the, you know, not, certainly not in a timely manner. Um, And, you know, it's exasperated by those PTSD and occupational stress injuries. And as you said, there are people who, um, you know, smart people who have trouble filling out the paperwork. And, And it's not just filling out the paperwork. It's being asked, once that paperwork is filled out, to fill out more or even, you know, When you're processing the claim or even at a later time to to be able to to, or to be asked to to fill out that paperwork. So it's it's difficult. So what you know, what is the solution to this? And I I think the solution, uh, the model of a solution is similar. And I go back to my experience as a firefighter, Mark, where in Ontario we have presumptive legislation. Uh, for uh, different types of cancer uh, that are sustained uh, in the performance of your duty. It's presumed that those cancers uh, are as a result of your service, in my case or our case as a firefighter. I think if Veterans Affairs opens up uh, a presumptive uh, uh, claims process where If, like you said, uh, somebody's knee is impacted as a result of their military service, then it should be. A simple solution for VAC to presume that that uh, injury was attributed to service and that that claim should be processed in a timely manner. Like, and I'm not talking months, if it's presumed to be attributed to service, then the veteran should be entitled to the benefit that they receive. And there are other categories that that can fall into, for example, like tinnitus, uh, you know, other claims, other less complicated claims where we can process things quickly, not process them in a matter of six months, 12 months, 24 months, which is too long. I mean, I've heard in some cases claims that uh, are taking 64, 66 weeks, uh, um, you know, and that's 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 not right. It's not normal for uh, claims to be processed, especially in the context of what VAC's policy is with respect to processing those claims. And in this backlog, uh, this 40,000 plus backlog is certainly causing more problems uh, than, uh, than they're finding solutions. So I think from a presumptive standpoint, you know, we should be able to uh, approve the claim and then work back if we have to. And I, I was talking to just before the election, I was talking to, uh, I think it was Canadian Press, about our report. And, you know, we, we the, the example that I gave is the income tax system, right? So if Mark is entitled to, for argument's sake, a $1,000 back on his income tax, Mark files his income tax electronically, and within 7 to 14 days, that money is deposited into his account. Now, if those at the CRA want to come back and audit Mark and, you know, look at don't even say needs-
0: that john <laughs>
1: no no but, uh, yeah well, you know what i'm saying i'm giving an example here but but if those you know if if if, if there's a, a you know if there's a need to go back and and check out mark's filings then the cra does that uh, we should be able to do that in much simpler terms for those claims that come into vac we should be able to give those veterans um, the benefit that you know the injury or the claim calls for, and if there 's a need to to come back and say, "Okay, well, you know give me your paperwork now in the meantime we 're not stalling the process of those claims for many of those veterans uh, you know, it's the determining factor between housing and eating, and making sure that they they get those claims. So there is, you know, that to me, that's the simplest process, and it does speak to the issue of attribution to service, uh, presuming that that injury uh, is uh, is as a result of their service to this country. And VAC can, uh, in my opinion, process those claims in a much simpler, much quicker quicker form than what's happening right now, especially for the more simpler ca- cases. The more complicated cases. Obviously, there's a little more work that needs to be done. but uh, but there's a way to clear that backlog very, very quickly. And the answer, as I said earlier, is not just to throw billions of dollars at the problem uh, and putting more personnel in there. I would suggest that you could probably get away with less personnel if we were to move to a presumptive claim process. So, John, even checking uh, your
0: email, if I'm going to, to go uh, to, into the uh, veterans.gc.ca website, just to check mm-hmm. an email, you count the you know, the amount of steps, it's eight. Right. Eight Steps just so I can read an email and that there's no excuse for that. If you want to find the, uh, if, if you're uh, in a serious speed wobble and you're looking to find the suicide hotline number, it's 10 steps
1: mm.
0: by the time like, you're not going to find that number. It, it, yeah. it's, it's buried. And this is because uh, when bureaucrats are in charge, this is what happens. So the, the system, all of the system needs to be streamlined and, and looked at like somebody in the private sector would do it and, uh, just make it easier to get in there, to read your emails, to have the communications and not have to fill out the exact same form, which I just did last week four mm-hmm. times, the same form. Mm-hmm. Yep. Same form, same the same thing. Got to fill out it again four times. Like there's there's no excuses for these things, and they're easy fixes. Just get rid of the the garbage and the junk and the clutter.
1: Yeah, and it's cumbersome, Mark, as you say. And um, you know, there's a there's a way to streamline this system. And you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, it 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 takes leadership to do that. Um, You know, we've we've been in a situation right now where. Uh, we've had uh, four ministers of Veterans Affairs over the last six years, five ministers of Veterans Affairs over the last six years. And why is it such Uh, a hot
0: potato, John? uh,
1: uh, Because I think there needs to be a will, and I go back to the conversation that I had with Aaron before. Uh, There has to be the will, and there has to be the direction, the political direction, in my opinion, to correct these problems. And you know, they are simple fixes, Mark, uh, but there has to be a will and there has to be that direction to do that. And we just haven't seen that. And listen, I, uh, you know, I want to be, I want to be perfectly clear that, you know, I, I got elected in 2015, so I wasn't involved in the previous government, uh, but there were challenges then too. And I admit that there were challenges. Okay. So, so, you know, we, we, we seemingly, go, everybody's sort of circling around trying to figure this out. Uh, I think it's going to take one person, uh, and that's probably the minister <laughs> to direct what needs to be done within within his department. Um, you know, and I'm not taking anything away from from the bureaucracy. I've dealt with, um, you know, the Virginia Viancourt I've dealt with uh, the people that work at VAC. Uh, they genuinely want to do the right thing, but I think there's been a lack of p- political will, a lack of political direction. Um, and as I said earlier, we've had four. Or five Minister of Veterans Affairs over the last six years, uh, there needs to be direction to the department that this is the way it's going to get done. And in my opinion, it's an easy fix, Mark. It's just whether there's a will to do it. And, uh, you uh, know, with that, that
0: constant game of, of musical chairs for that. Um, it seems like the Veterans Affairs portfolio is the toilet bowl prize that nobody seems to want.
1: And, and I, 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 told Aaron, I told Aaron that before the election. I said, listen, you know, if we do win, unfortunately we didn't win, but I said, if you appoint a Minister of Veterans Affairs, I don't care who he or she is, there has to be continuity in that position. You can't keep bouncing people in and out because if, if we're going to implement the policy platform that we're putting forward, and a lot of it was designed to correct the issues that exist, whether it's those transitional issues, attribution to service, all of those things, you need to appoint one person and one person only to fix that problem, right? And if he or she fails to do that, fails to implement what those that policy direction is, only then can you replace them, or should you replace them. You shouldn't be replacing, you know, promoting, demoting, or whatever, because to me, it, it's, uh, it's a simple fix, and uh, we addressed all of it. We uh, – I – from my standpoint, I don't think any more money needs to be thrown in at the problem in terms of you know bloating the bureaucracy. I think we need to find efficiencies in the bureaucracy, and there are ways to do that, many of which have been addressed already either through committee work or through the policy platform in which we which we developed uh, going into the the last election. Is
0: the role of veteran Ombudsman there to try to provide more continuity for the uh, Veterans Affairs minister position?
1: I, I think it plays an important role, not just not just on the continuity and advice to the Veterans Affairs Minister, but also as an advocate for veterans. I am, I can't begin to tell you how impressed I am uh, with uh, Nishika Jardine. Um, she, uh, she, uh, her, and I have had a couple of conversations uh, since she was appointed. We haven't had enough of them, frankly, uh, and uh, you know, obviously, with my new role as critic for ethics and accountable government. I'm going to move away from that. But the first advice that I'm going to give to the new shadow minister for Veterans Affairs is to reach out to Nishika, uh, because in her short tenure as the uh, ombuds person for Veterans Affairs, she understands and she gets it. And, uh, she's, she's a good one to lean on, uh, and not just to provide advice to her that she can provide to the government and hopefully that they implement some of that advice, but also to advocate on behalf of veterans and their families across this country. I'm very, very impressed with her.
0: Well, I'm going to have to ask you for an introduction because I've actually reached out to that office twice without a reply. Okay. So if you could introduce me, that would be appreciated. Uh, I tell you, I bet you there's nobody in the veterans communities that even knows her name we don't hear anything. We don't hear anything about that role. Most don't even know that that role exists and there's no presence on, uh, social media or, or the news about that role. It's, it seems to be a silent invisible role. So whatever work is being done, we don't know about it.
1: Mm. Well, um, You know, I I can't speak to that. I know that uh, I can only speak to the interactions that I've had with uh, Nishika in her office. And even in advance of that, uh, the staff within that office are... uh, for us really accessible and oftentimes uh, we've gone to them with issues that veterans are facing and have had them successfully resolved so uh, I would be glad uh, Rob who you've been dealing with in my office has a very good relationship with the veterans ombudsman office and he'd be glad to uh, to make that connection for you Mark for sure.
0: Well I appreciate it John and I appreciate your uh, your continued service what's your new portfolio again?
1: Ethics and accountable government, and it's not like I'm going to be uh, not busy in that role if the last six (laughs) years are any indication of uh, the lack of ethics and the lack of transparency, the corruption, the ethics scandal. I think it's going to be a very busy role. I talked to Michael Barrett this morning, who previously held that role, and his advice to me was, prepare to be busy. But, you know, in saying that, Mark, I do want to say that, um, you know, I've invested a a significant amount of my time as a Member of Parliament as the Shadow Minister for Veterans Affairs. I've built um, tremendous relationships across the country and will continue to advocate as we have over these years to uh, ensure that veterans and their families are looked after. It's something, as I said before, I have a profound respect for veterans, um, you know, we, I serve my community; they serve their country, and uh, there's 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 that relationship there that uh, that I uh, that I don't take for granted. And uh, you know, I, I would encourage uh, anybody to uh, reach out to the new uh, shadow minister for Veterans Affairs, who is the member from Kelowna Lake Country. Uh, but I expect uh, over the next week that I'm going to be meeting with him uh, on a transitional. Yeah, what's basis. his name? Uh, Caputo. Rick Caputo. Okay. There's there's several new members of of Parliament, but he's the member from Kelowna. Or sorry, Kamloops Thompson Caribou. Uh, is his writing. Um, uh, so he's the new shadow minister for veterans affairs. Uh, we've I've, we've already prepared a uh, a transition document. Uh, many of the things that you and I have spoken about are in that document on what he needs to work on. But I'm always going to be there. And my office is always going to be there to help guide him. We've also got some strong advocates too, Mark, on our team. Uh, Kathy Wagenthal, who many people uh, know uh, uh, has uh, really taken on the role as uh, Deputy Shadow Minister for Veterans Affairs. She is, uh, um, you know, a strong, strong advocate and a strong voice for veterans and their families. She's from uh, Yorkton, Melville in Saskatchewan. Uh, but we're going to continue to be there. We're going to work uh, on behalf of veterans. Uh, again, I, you know, that connection to base board and really uh, locks me into, uh, you know, the veterans community. Uh, I'm an honorary member of the and Simcoe Foresters, uh, the Honourable Guard. I'm also a member of the uh, honorary member of the Central Ontario Peacekeepers. Um, so you know, I, I, I deal with veterans locally a lot, as I have across the country, and we're going to continue in that role uh, to make sure that veterans uh, get the respect and the benefits that they've earned for this for the service to this country.
0: Do you have a motorcycle?
1: No, no.
0: Well, get no, yourself a motorcycle. Join us for the right. rolling barrage next year.
1: Well, I you know every year they've come through Barry, and just uh, when they came through in August, I, uh, I joined them for a beer over at uh, I think it was uh, Mon- or no Eastside Mario's they were at this year. So uh, I know Scott Casey had uh, had started that, and Scott I have a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, um, and I think I hope the feeling is mutual. And that's one of the things, Mark, that I've really taken in my role is to is to just you know I was asked in the House of Commons by Dan Blakely, you know, what's it going to take uh, to restore uh, the relationship between veterans and and the government? I said, you've got to stop the bullshit, right? Like, you know, stop stop telling them that you're going to do something that you don't do. Tell them what you can do and explain what you can't. And that's the type of relationships that I've tried to build right across the country. Just don't bullshit them. I didn't say bullshit in the House of Commons. I almost did. Well, you, was, you can that, swear all you was, want on this show. I, I, I was that close Uh, I would have been admonished by the speaker, but you know, I, I, that's, and I, and I, I, you know, even in our policy platform development uh, leading up to the next election, I, t- I told Aaron that I said, you know, we just can't bullshit these guys anymore and these girls. We just can't. We have to, we have to tell them what we can do and what we can't do and explain why. And that's uh, that's important to me. So you know, that that level of relationship that I've built uh, right across the country has been based on that uh, and and humility as well, and saying to. Veteran stakeholders, and their advocates, uh, as I've met with them, I say, listen, you know, we weren't perfect as a conservative government, and we weren't, um, and I've apologized for some of the actions that that we've taken as well, um, but it's all about making sure that we, we do what we need to do.
0: Closing so. question. Uh, yeah. Are there still any court cases that are happening right now that are ongoing between the government and veterans?
1: Uh, I'd have to look into that. Uh, carefully, I know that uh, back in two thousand and eighteen, we asked an order paper question about the amount of money that the government had spent on court cases. I suspect that there still are i wouldn't be aware of any individual court cases, some of the larger ones, the class actions, obviously I would be but any anything to do with vrab or any of the tribunals that uh, i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily be aware of that, but I know in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, after the promise in 2015, when the prime minister stood in Belleville and said that no veteran should have to fight their government in court for the benefits that they deserve, that the government had spent $40 million in legal fees fighting veterans in court. So that was 2018. So I, uh, I don't keep track of individual court cases. Some of the larger ones I would, um, uh, I know, you know, I, I was aware, for example, of Sean Bruyere's case, um, against uh, minister O'Regan, that was a highly publicized case but not all of them are publicized Uh, but i'm sure that there are still cases that are out there
0: john thank you for being on today
1: Yep. My pleasure, Mark. Anytime. And, uh, you know, thanks to your audience as well. It's important work in keeping the lines of communication open. And as I said earlier, I'm always, I'm always, my office will always be there for veterans and their families uh, to contact us. And I'll work closely with the new shadow minister for veterans affairs uh, to make sure that he's brought up to speed on the file and that he continues to advocate as I will for veterans and their families. And I always include families for the reasons that I gave earlier, because they serve as much as those who serve and and have served. So thank you uh, and happy Remembrance Day to everyone. Make sure you get out, you support your veterans. I know tomorrow Two hours in the morning, I'm going to be in Innisfil, manning the poppy fund, and then in the afternoon in Barrie for an hour. Uh, I try to do that every year. My wife and I do uh, just to show our support. And again, that, that profound respect that we have for those who served our country and continue to serve our country. They are the ties that bind our great country together. And we will always and should always remember them. Thanks.
0: Thank you for sharing your voice with the veteran community today, John, and um Thank you for your continued service. Please stay on the line. Thank you, Mark. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Miller's Law, a veteran-founded and run law firm. Miller's Law is giving back to the community that gives so much by making an incredible special offer to our listeners. For the next 30 days, Miller's Law is offering veterans and first responders a family will and power of attorney for only $299. Typically, a will in POA can cost over $2,000. That's a $1,700 savings. This offer is a meaningful way to say thank you for your service for all veterans and first responders. To take advantage of this amazing gift, don't wait go to millerslaw.com, M-I-L-L-A-R-S, law.com, or email them at info at millerslaw.com. If you prefer to phone, you can call toll-free 855 5547 That's one 855 Don't delay. Do it today.